Hello and welcome again to the Rethink Energy podcast. Uh, the Rethink Energy team are here. We're going to talk about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm uh, CEO Peter White. We've got uh, editor Bogdan Everuta. Hello, everybody. We've got solar analyst Andrews Fontenar. Hello. And EV and battery analyst Conor Watts. Hello. All the discussion today comes from the issue on our website. Go to www.rethinkresearch.biz. Click on energy, and uh, if you can't read the stories, it's because you're not a subscriber. Uh, but you can ask for a free trial there, and then you can certainly read uh, the first five or six lines of each story anyway. Uh, we have to do that to let Google in. This week's lead article is actually about a forecast on employment, which we're gradually building together for the whole energy transition. This particular one is about the passenger car industry as we shift from ICE vehicles to electric vehicles as part of a whole series on employment post-energy transition. And if you're not a subscriber and you need to see those numbers, you best sign up. But we're not going to go over those numbers today, uh, perhaps at a later date. Instead, fading momentum in the Chinese economy has suddenly panicked us all. It's um, led to falling prices on uh, rare earth metals, which affects all of us, affects the raw materials chain. China's industrial production rose only 3.7% in July. And in this issue, we ask, is this the end of the Chinese economic miracle? And if it is, what effect will it have on the renewables? We also ask this week if faster than sound travel will ever be possible on sustainable fuels, as promised by Boom Supersonic as it develops its overture flying program. Or is this just creating an expensive flight option for rich kids because it's so expensive? Our third discussion will take on another US Provsky company, Tandem PV, and we, we'll try and see how soon um, we, we can actually have two or three Provsky players uh, competing in commercial operations. Uh, and then I'll finally I'll ask a few questions about one or two of the short items. First, Connor, let's talk about China and its industrial production. Yeah, so we've had some more uh, data coming out of the Chinese economy, which has seen numbers that basically any Western company would be more than happy with right now. But last month it entered into deflation, which is often a harbinger of things to come. It's completely refused to publish its youth unemployment figures for the foreseeable future, which is a vote of confidence. Regular unemployment has rose 0.1%, and its industrial production, as you mentioned, has only rose 3.7% year over year. Well, what we used to, what we used to normally, you know, 3.7%, we normally used to 6 or 7 or 8%. Yeah, exactly. You're used to high singles, low doubles at times. But a lot of this is off the back of China's recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, which it remained locked down and in isolation to account for, for far longer than Western countries and even most Asian ones. And its recovery just hasn't materialized in the way that people expected. And the CCP seems to be refusing to generate a significant stimulus package that would um, kind of stave off a deflationary cycle, which is what we may be on the cusp of. Right. So you're expecting China to suddenly announce some news. Um... Uh, the the, the uh, a, a stimulus package and the, the the result 
of that will be the exact opposite of what we've witnessed this week, which is instead of all the metals prices falling on, on lack of demand, they rise again. It's been long enough now that China's economy has been known to have been recovering too slowly that I would have expected by now for there to have been a significant stimulus package. There was a brief period politically in China a couple of months ago where it was expected that there would be a significant stimulus package, but it was small targeted supply chain measures that have been designed to be very specific. There was There has been no kind of broad brush strokes in order to lift everybody out. It's just targeted measures to address the really hard hit industries. Okay, what are the, so what are the key metals? We're not expecting a Chinese IRA. Okay, what are the, the key metals that this has affected? It's mostly base metals at the moment. So copper and aluminium are both down to uh, two and a half percent on the week. That sounds relatively small, but these are important markets, which China's absolutely gargantuan use of them make, leaves a kind of outsized effect on those markets. Iron is also down a tad and it's kind of nearing the $100 mark and I think it's a 104. The broader expectation of this is that China is both not recovering in the way that we expect and Western countries are making significant attempts to onshore raw material production away from China. So China's share of raw material consumption is falling rather rapidly because of a lack of growth and because of demand shifting due to policies and so is it, subsidies. Is this, that, is, this, is this the West refusing to deal with China, refusing to buy from China? Or is that already cutting in? Or, or I thought that would cut in in a year or so. No, this is more internal China problems, but... That's what I'm saying in the future. I think this will be a protracted problem for China if they don't do something about it, which they've shown no inclination of doing so far. Yeah. And so this all started with China's property market with the um, Evergrande situation. And another large property developer is at risk of bankruptcy. So it's looking like that's continuing to get worse. That's one of the ways that China was inflating its GDP figures and its production statistics and its raw material demand was through the massive expansion of the property sector. But that doesn't fit with its current demographic levels, which is now a shrinking post-industrial, which is now a shrinking economy, which emulates post-industrial states like Japan and Europe and to a degree, the US. Yeah, you can't be in, in, in that, the kind of condition that Japan's in. I mean, it can't have, uh, have run out of growth entirely. I mean, it's, this is just a temporary setback, surely. This will come. No, in... not at all. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that the population demographics of China, as of right now, in terms of total population growth, are emulating that of post industrial states. But it's still expecting the growth of a developing economy with spare capacity. So it can't get that from the property sector anymore, and that's weighing down on raw material prices. So and perhaps you're, you're looking at economic growth as something that happens almost literally when people grow from age 20 to age 60. But what you're saying is there's a lot fewer age 20 people compared to a lot of China's population is already 40 or 50. So from a sort of career perspective, a lot of the growth has happened. Um, Almost. <laughs> Not really. The, you're kind of touching on the youth unemployment issue there at the moment with the statistics they are now no longer publishing, which is that there's a kind of education mismatch, again, between expectations of what the Chinese state wants 
and between what the Chinese state in a way provides in the form of education. So youth unemployment is abominably high in China. So new university graduates are often better off staying in the country that they studied, whether that's the UK, the US, Australia, just because employment prospects are significantly better there because China still wants to be this industrial powerhouse with, ex with an expanding industrial base, but that r relies on having a low cost of production, which you can't pay a graduate salary for. And so why would you go abroad and study after spending thousands of dollars on yeah, university I mean, and then go back to a factory? It's had an inflating middle class for a long time. And it's still, when you actually look at the demographics, uh, uh, if you looked at it in detail, I'm sure you'd find there's still a lot of poor people in China. There are, but there's also a lot of rather discontent young people. Oh, and, oh well, that's you know, not, not news anywhere on the planet, is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a point. But the Chinese state is used to being able to deal with its rather discontent young people in a... Let's not Especially get into why, that. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. And so its way of dealing with it no longer works because its population is its lifeblood. What about viewing this as a um, something that happens after the pandemic? Because they had a second round of lockdowns in 2022, didn't they? Yeah, they did. So then, then you have rapid hmm. growth once that uh, is lifted, but after the immediate um, relief, once the lockdowns are lifted, which I suppose would last, what, six months or something, maybe then you get a slowdown? Is that part of what's the timing here? It sounds like Somewhat. it to me. It sounds like it to me. It sounds like it's cyclic, that what you've got here is the optimism of the lockdown um, led to people employing too many people too quickly and then going, oh, oh you know, we've overdone it. And that slowed down a bit. Another point of this is that would feed into the issue with regards to property. So we've seen in the West how commercial uh, real estate is struggling, to say the least, to retain um, office-based positions. Having lockdowns and then no lockdowns and then more lockdowns is not good for the construction sector when it's healthy. And so the issues seen within that particular industry are just feeding into raw material markets that's what i mostly wanted to look at with this yeah. okay i mean i think um the you know there's some good news here uh, if it stops using quite so much cement in its building industry it won't be quite so polluting um since you know it gives off so much uh, uh co2 um cement manufacture um mm -hmm. also the the the, the, the style of government in China, people don't seem to understand that central planning is always, it's always possible to make mistakes. The thing about the West is we, we're slaves to the market. We believe the market knows better than we do, and we just let stuff happen. Um, and so the building sector uh, boom slumps all the time. Whereas here, if the government says we need more houses, they build more houses. Um, if the government uh, can't find anyone for those houses, often they just still build more houses. It, I mean, it's sometimes because it's centrally controlled, it's not really in touch with itself. We've seen that. There was a lovely thing from our entertainment side where they're building cinema after cinema so that they can have the same um, density of cinema seats as there is in the West. And these cinemas are just like ghost towns with two people in them. Um, and it's just because it's a policy, they just kept doing it. Uh, and it went on for a decade. 
So the building industry isn't as attuned to the markets in China as perhaps it is outside China. Anyway, uh, we're going to move on. Um, we can discuss Chinese politics um, for, for hours. But the only reason for talking about China, as Connor was saying, is how it affects the rest of the world. If it's seen in any way as a drain on, uh, you know, we, we, we're paranoid that China has too much control of too many metals. And then suddenly, oh, the metals are cheap because China doesn't want them right now. Um, that, that You can't have it both ways. Um, so I'm sure this is good news rather than bad. Um, Bogdan, you've done something on supersonic flight. You're talking about boom supersonic. Um, we, we know this, um, this aircraft company um, said that all their flights will um, uh, be powered by SAF. But um, is it realistic to go faster than the speed of sound, Mach, Mach one and a half? I mean, it's definitely physically possible. We know the Concorde did it. But I guess with the article, I was more questioning the economic side of things. And there's plenty of caveats to everything that they said. Even when they when they say that they can run 100% on SAF, they can run 100% on SAF. Um, and they keep saying that their aircraft will be 100% SAF ready. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it will actually run on SAF <laughs> to start with. So <laughs> that's a bit of a caveat because... Um, they're, they're aiming for to gain certification in 2029 and begin flying probably 2029, 2030. That's their plan anyway. Um, but like I said, they only mentioned that their engines are 100% SAF ready, but they only aim for net okay. zero. So they're not. They're not buying it. Yeah, they're not buying the petrol. The airlines they sell the. Oh yeah, 100 percent. So yeah, they lease the planes to the airline operators and then. They can choose to run them on SAF or, or kerosene. Um, will there be enough SAF in 2030? Doubtful. Um, another interesting thing is they actually have um, in their frequent um, asked questions sections on their website, they have a question which reads, how much will tickets cost? And um, they say, they quote, fair similar to first in business class, which again, is that going to be appealing to have tickets from they say they can fly New York to Frankfurt or Tokyo to Seattle they give you know its examples do you expect uh, a lot of people to well, be able to afford tickets that cost a couple thousand dollars well you, you go you, you go to the Concorde you go to the Concorde for that you know and it was a couple of thousand dollars to yeah. um, have a transatlantic flight Mm -hmm. But um, uh, and there was lots of people who wanted to do it, and it managed to keep two aeroplanes <laughs> in <laughs> in business for all of seven or eight years, yeah. um, and then the novelty wore off. Three and a half hours to fly to America from Europe is uh, it is yeah, it's great. Oh yeah, don't if, get me if... wrong, that that's great, that's great. But we know the Concorde failed because. I mean, the business uh, case for the Concorde was shaking before the crash. And um, I guess I'm asking what's what's changed 20 years later because we're looking at increased costs for SAF. If it's going to run on SAF, we know the costs are going to be higher than kerosene. Um, so a struggling business... Well, has it got orders? Yes, yeah. it has. It has 20... Uh, American Airlines ordered 20... Put, actually put a deposit down for 20 units, 20 planes. So... Okay, so it has orders. 
past what this company cares about, it's selling the planes it's make. How has it got a break even point? Does it have a like a set margin on these planes? Because as far as this company mm. cares, as from what I can tell here, is it it's making the planes as a novelty, selling it to a big airlines and running. That's at least what I'd be doing. I mean, sure, but then if you only sell twenty planes and maybe you sell twenty more to another company, Delta or somebody, and then two years down the line, Once everybody has twenty planes yeah. that aren't overly like yeah, they can't utilized, make twenty planes are. work, and then nobody orders anything anymore from you. What do you do then? You spend all this all this money and effort and time to sell forty planes. I, I'm not. No, I'm less worried about the uh, supersonic bit. I mean, the supersonic thing will fail. Uh, that's you know, you hear it here first. Mm. It's it's um, technology has advanced considerably since Concorde. It will be a lighter, smaller aircraft, and and I'm sure it will use less fuel, and it will probably cost less to build. But it, it will still fail for all the same reasons. There won't be enough demand for two planes. Never mind twenty. Um, yeah. The and and then you know we, we're now talking about the prices of it, of air aircraft travel going up. Not you know, we have cheap aircraft travel in Europe. You want to travel here to Spain, you can get a fifty pound flight. We're expecting that to go to two hundred um, in the next ten years. I mean, because, it's already gone up a bit. So yeah. So you, you, there might be still the odd fifty pound flight, but there will be less people who actually experience that. Oh, yeah, I mean the five a flight might be might be fifty pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only if you book nine months in advance. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah the the cost of travelling via, via aircraft is definitely going up, and you've hit on the reason in this story that that they're just going to um, pay carbon taxes mm. and just pollute and paying to pollute. It's going to cost between 800 million and 1.6 trillion, you say, mm-hmm. um, at the current price of carbon. And never mind the 50% inflated price we're going to see in three or four years. So yeah. um, there's no way that that can't end up on the ticket price. And if it ends up on the ticket price, that's going to um, dissuade a significant number of people from flying. So there's even less rich kids to say, I want to go on the quick flight, daddy, you know, pay me $2,000. There just aren't going to be enough people wanting it. So so it's just, that's not going to happen. And anyway, while you've got kerosene, while you're paying those carbon taxes, um, you're not developing SAF. And anyway, is SAF actually, um, yeah, SAF could, uh, if, if the idea had been embraced properly, it could have worked if, if yeah. people, if the industry had, had planned to use all the farm waste on the planet, or half of the farm waste on the planet, and just turn it into into fuel, it would have worked. But they just talk about it and do nothing. So we're still in the do nothing stage. Bogdan, how much has the aviation sector recovered since COVID? Because in the article, you go into airline profit margins. Yeah and such and it's incredibly low so as peter mentioned the um additional costs from participating in carbon markets will have to be shunted onto consumers mm. and it's questioning how bad are airliners doing at the moment 28 percent down on 2019 oh. in revenue terms 
They're still 28% down on 2019. So the thing is, transport everywhere, car sales, 20 to 30% down on 2019. It, it, it's Transport is an uncertainty now. It's a luxury. Um, what's the best way? Um, there's an article uh, about a year ago in the Financial Times. What's the best way to reduce your carbon footprint? And they looked at uh, your cost of driving, your cost of heating your home, and said, yeah, kill one trans transcontinental flight per annum, and you'll save more carbon that way. I mean, it, it's transport is down everywhere. People are not traveling anywhere like they did in 2019. Yeah, no, I agree with that. They kind of recovered almost um, on a um, kind of gross um, flight numbers. But there's definitely uh, a demand. Yeah, but that's because they converted so many planes to freight freight planes to to take to, to bring things that are ordered on the internet to your um, to your door as fast as as possible. So uh, you know, freight has gone up. People transporting has gone down. That's going to be less viable now that the various um, supply chain issues have been abated. So the blocking of the Suez Canal and. Yeah. 2021, 2022, yeah. that would have done wonders for airliners, wouldn't it? Well, so yeah, I mean, it does. It, now that that yeah. sort of thing is pretty much cleared up, the sea is uh, the much, much less expensive option now. Oh, yeah, and there's some real innovation in using um, the sea, um, having uh, freight, um, uh, low-flying, 100-foot-flying uh, aircraft come... Um, hovercraft going across you know unmanned going across the atlantic uh, things like, ideas like that are, are being invested in at the moment to bring down the cost of freight and um yeah i think that i think some of those will work um on some routes so i think yeah using planes uh, to bring in lettuce from the, uh, another part of the world it just isn't going to be economical I have a uh, very broad question. So how, how decarbonized is um, air travel going to be by 2050? Is hydrogen really only going to be achieved for, for small aircraft on short flights? No. Um, no. I, I think you've got to read our SAF paper on that. Bogdan went into this clearly. <laughs> Come on. Sorry, sorry, Bogdan. Yeah, no. Hydrogen has potential to decarbonize long haul as well. But we're looking at hydrogen combustion engines using catalysts for NOx emissions. Those are still in development. It's very early days for them. It's not as simple as putting a fuel cell in a plane and sticking a propeller at the end of it and a hydrogen tank. Um, Airbus are doing a lot of work in that um, in that space, but they're. Uh... So you mentioned you mentioned in this article that according to BP, oh. uh, by twenty fifty, the av aviation industry will still be using sixty percent kerosene. So you have your own view, which is a lot more optimistic than that. Yeah, I mean, well, that's BP. Makes BP so yeah, they have they have the BP thinks that that sixty percent of oil will still be used by twenty fifty, including yeah. for for ground transport, and they're they're in la la land if they think that's right. That's a lunacy. Well, I I have my own little beef with a, a big um, forecaster this week and last week of Wood Mackenzie saying two hundred and seventy gigawatts DC installed for solar worldwide. This year, it's not even a disagreement about 30 years' time. It's this year, and I think that's the amount that you get almost from just China and Europe and one other market. <laughs> and a, a global figure of 33% higher. So I don't know how 
it's crazy how, how big the disagreements are. And that's what you get when you decide you design forecasts by committee and 50% of your customers are oil companies um, and, and keep telling you, no, no, you're getting this wrong. And you start listening to them. The funniest ones for solar are when they, they admit the 50% growth roughly of the, this year and next year, and then they go back to 1% growth for the next decade <laughs> per year. I'm, not, I'm barely exaggerating. Um, well, that's because they take the view that the hydrogen industry is not going to happen and therefore there won't be any other outlet for solar. You know, I mean, we're, we're, you have to admit, when we looked at the hydrogen industry, the upgrade to solar uh, installations um, had to be quite radical. Um, now, we think that's going to happen. And we, we think the hydrogen industry is going to happen. If you happen to believe that, no, no, the oil industry, the oil industry can't go away, you're stuck. You're stuck with a forecast that says, well, in which case, there's no requirement for quite as much solar after um, five or ten years of growth. I mean, it is insane because that's just not how economics works. That's not how change happens. But people can't just sit there with their eyes screwed up saying oil can't go away. Um, you know, you, you, they're like bad tempered six year olds. Um, it, it's just not, it, it, it is going away, guys. Get over it. I think a lot of it must be just because solar for a long time was dependent on government policies and subsidies and incentives and, and so on. And so it didn't grow a huge amount uh, in like up in, in the decade before 2019. It even declined after 2008 briefly, well, almost declined. Certainly in Europe, it collapsed because they stopped funding it. But, um, yeah, but they, stopped, they stopped funding it because Chinese imports were undercutting. Um, it, it's because China took the technology seriously and nobody else did. And after uh, a couple of decades of subsidy, it doesn't need it anymore. It's the cheapest form of energy. You can't put it back in the box, you know, it, 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 Pandora, not available to put back in the box. You have to, and now it's the cheapest form of energy. When that happens to batteries, um, and it still is in the process of happening to batteries, all the raw materials issues aside, you, you're going to have the stable, um, predictable, dispatchable energy between solar, wind, and batteries. And that it, that's it. We're done for fossil fuels at that point. So let's move on. What's our... Um... The last one is, I spoke to yet another perovskite company, yeah. Tandem PV. And I, I really like this company's concept. Uh, their idea is they make a perovskite coated cover glass. And that's all they do. Then they just sell that to a, a silicon manufacturer, which uses that instead of the normal glass covering. And so they don't have to make silicon at all. Um, they don't even do the module production. They just make the perovskite cells. Uh, well, actually, they make the full module of, of, of perovskite, but uh, within within the cover glass. So they're, they're sort of um, the headwind. They're, uh, what's, I've forgotten the word. But anyway, the, their base of uh, operations and industrial investment is so low once they actually get around to making a pilot line. It'll be very cheap to scale up. Um, it's a very easy proposition for some silicon manufacturer they're co cooperating with to suddenly have uh, an improved offering. And it's not really that hard to integrate, I, I believe. 
Can you imagine um, set, it, selling this? You know, you knock on the door. Uh, your your solar um, operates at twenty percent efficiency. How would you like it to operate at twenty five percent? Oh, I'd love it. How much is it going to cost me? Almost nothing. Uh, you know, okay, where do I sign? I mean, that's just yeah, exactly. It's it's completely brain uh, free. You know, it, it's it's you know, it has to happen. I mean, Kalux, and they 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 did the same thing. I, I mean, when are these two? business is going to scale so i had a complete uh, brain issue while i was writing this article about tandem pv i somehow forgot that calyx existed even though i spoke to them in october don't, and wrote don't tell Scott that. <laughs> <laughs> well it's just it's my fault purely anyway so calyx re reminded me of its existence um after I'd finished this article about Tandem PV, otherwise I would have mentioned them in it as another American company doing basically the same thing. They reminded me of their existence this week by announcing uh, a $12 million, 100 megawatt pilot line. So there you go. Uh, and Tandem PV, um, they recently brought in the new CEO, Scott Wharton, who I spoke to, and he is he says he's there um, after a, you know, a life. Uh, he's, he's always wanted to be in solo, but he spent his time for a few decades in uh, IT startups. And he finally saw an opportunity to return to solar, and he he views his role as just um, commercializing Tandem PV, bringing it to market. So I would expect them to also announce a pilot line in the next year. Now he was actually a little bit cagey with me about various things like what's the names of the silicon manufacturers he's cooperating with, uh, but he did he was clear on some things like their their durability uh, of their perovskites is twenty to twenty five years, so only five years less than silicon. Um, and it's kind of a similar, I get a similar theme uh, sense from him and from Chris Case, um, the CTO of Oxford PV, who I spoke to recently and haven't written that up as an article yet, but I soon will, um, which is they actually feel they can already make a good product, but there's just no point because if they just wait a little bit longer, if they just bring their best laboratory results and work on turning them into something they can produce at scale, well, then they don't have a competitive, they don't have a product that's merely competitive. They have one that is a lot better just from waiting uh, and spending more time finishing off. So I, I you know, I, I really believe that this is uh, something that will be produced in uh, four years in the case of Tandem PV. I mean, Kalux is producing, it is building its 100 megawatt pilot line now. So that will be complete next year. And then I guess it will spend one or two years uh, producing batches of, of test products uh, in that, at most. And then they will actually be selling it. Yeah, and but Tandem PV, um, its funding is only twenty million dollars it's ever had. So its last funding round, I think, was middle of last year's. It's a year into that. It's probably only got enough money for two years. It's going to need a fun, another funding round um, to ramp up production. Yeah, maybe your opinion is more profound on this than mine. But I would, I would say Tandem PV is doing what Calix is, and, and they'll take a, a, an extra year or two. And it's especially nice that all of the... Uh... problem is, is, is um, you're getting uh, a learning curve going on heterojunction and a learning curve going on Topcon so that the prices of those manufacturing processes are coming down into, in, in parallel with this. So you have to be careful that you don't suddenly find you've got a 25% efficiency solar panel and, and, so, and so, so do other people with other technologies and you can't make it so much cheaper than everybody else anymore because they've been making it in volume for longer. You have to be careful of your timings. It is unfortunate for perovskites that silicon has just reduced its module cost by one third in the past few months. 
but at the same time, and, and you, you also have, you also, I'm not sure actually if you, if you're quite right about the top and heterojection, because yes, they are improving, but you can, you can add this to them as well. So that's true. you still, that's true. Yeah. So, so that's the, otherwise you, you would, you'd be right. There would be a problem there, but you can actually sell to them. If you add um, to them, it becomes a 30% efficiency. Well, I, I wouldn't we, go that far, we, we but hope, I suppose. We hope, yeah. yeah, we hope. All right, okay. You've got a report coming out on this that's a little overdue. There's been people waiting for it for a while now. Um, hopefully, we're going to see that out in the next week or so, um, and then we can get a global view on ProvSky and other developments from solar uh, around the world. Just leaves me to um, talk about uh, a couple of the um, short items that have been published in this week's issue. The one in particular grabbed me. Um, what if carbon capture could be integrated into a hydrogen manufacture? So a new company, Aquatic, has got this idea of, um, of electrolyzing seawater. And from the seawater that it collects, it also captures CO2 and it turns it into bicarbonate salts, which dissolve in the water. Um, while producing clean hydrogen. Maybe that's actually a business model for carbon capture. You know, oh, it just happens to be a byproduct of making hydrogen. I presume this was you, Bogdan. Yeah, I mean, when you're, when you're thinking about, you know, what the oceans are doing in terms of carbon capture, they're, you know, vast. They have a large surface area, so they can do that to scale effectively. An electrolyzer or even a direct air capture machine or anything that humans will build will not move the needle on reducing the carbon in our atmosphere. If yeah, you spin it the way you did and, and you look at it as a secondary byproduct uh, to go on the carbon market and potentially reduce the price of the, of the hydrogen that you're selling, essentially, because you integrate that into your business model, Potentially, but then again, there's so many electrolyzer companies out there fighting for efficiencies, fighting for effective designs. It's the balance is, is quite complex. You get things like people that generate hydrogen from waste, and and, uh -huh. and in fact, um, anybody that uses waste in their product, um, even um, Energy Vault um, uses uh, toxic um, coal ash in its product. If people will pay you to take stuff away, then that makes your business model cheaper. <laughs> if people will give you money because you're creating a carbon credit, um, maybe maybe that makes your hydrogen the cheapest on the market. Where is it that we're getting the idea that this is producing carbon credits? Uh, we, you know, we just came up with that. I mean, the, 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 what, what you're actually doing is is it's, it's, it's actually just removing uh, carbon it, as a part of the chemical process from the water that you're using for electrolysis. So as long as uh, the, the more hydrogen you produce, the more carbon you uh, get rid of. Um, it takes CO2 out of the air. It makes it sort of these bicarbonate salts and then dissolves them back in the water. Now, I don't know how you're going to um, certificate that, process but genuinely that's what tends to happen in um in in the oceans i mean the biggest problem with the oceans is that small um it changes in temperature and changes in acidity 
um, change the life cycles uh, in the smallest um, uh, things that live in the ocean, um, Prochlorococcus in particular and, and uh, green plankton. Um, and those absorb gargantuan amounts of um, carbon. And then if those die, uh, and are not eaten, they, they kind of fall to the bottom of the ocean and effectively just put a layer of carbon um, that's out of the system and not dissolved in, in the water. Uh, at the moment, that's 40 or 50% of global carbon that's, su that's sucked up by the ocean. If this is yet another, and you can genuinely measure it and, and you get another product at a price out of it, and it changes that price, and it doesn't matter how it changes that price. You know, you've got to be able to charge for um, tying up CO2 in some way. And one way is through a carbon credit. The other short item that intrigued me was uh, CATL. Um, it's got its new Shenzhen battery, um, a super fast charging LFP. Its claim is it can deliver 400 kilometers of driving range with a 10 minute charge. And, and a full charge will actually give you, it take, takes longer, it takes 30 minutes and, and will give you a range of 700 kilometers. And that's for delivery late 2023. And it's an LFP battery. We've been saying this kind of all the time that fast charging technologies will come to market in a five year time frame. Well, it's not a five year time frame. This is a this year time frame. Yep, and this is why I am going to be looking at next generation anode technologies quite soon. But prior to that, it's changed everything. It's electrolyte separator anode and cathode while using the cell to pack technology. So mass production in 2023, we don't have a number as to what that implies, but it'll be for delivery, I would imagine, in vehicles 2025, 2026, just because it does take a while to go from... Yeah. Um, a to B and to get production at a scale where it's necessary. but Except that, that the BYD has now overtaken CATL in LFP manufacture. CATL has sworn to catch it up. Uh, one of the ways BYD does that is by delivering LFP in its own vehicles. CATL has to come into the car industry and deliver this into its own vehicles. Um, and it has to, do, it has to be um, delivering it ahead of the market. So I'm just... So yeah. I would think there's going to be an aggressive play here to catch up the shortfall in an LFP supply with um, BYD. Well, with how CATL is going to be doing that, it has to deal with Ford. It has to deal with Tesla. It's using the bulk Western manufacturers as a key output mechanism because it's kind of recognizing that China is an inherently incredibly competitive market, whereas this is by far the best battery on the market when it is in mass production, 700 kilometers range, LFP based with anode separator and electrolyte technologies, everything in this is top of the line. And once it's in mass production, it'll be significantly cheaper than current LFP batteries for a massive bump in performance. What's interesting about this, this is LFP, this isn't M3P, this is an LMFP. Yeah, yeah. So it can go first. It's got a chemistry update one and two already lined up. Assuming it's compatible with the electrolyte changes and such, but this is CATL. I can trust them to sort that out in the lab and implement it within a year of mass production. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think all this really underlines is what we've been saying about range 
anxiety. Range anxiety leaves the electric vehicle market and falls firmly on the oil industry market. I'm going to get range anxiety when the two petrol stations near me close down because then I'll have to drive 30 miles to fill up my car. And they're, and they're looking tatty already. And they can't even afford a paint job. So another 5 10% of cars goes electric vehicle. And suddenly the range anxiety will shift, not on electric vehicles, but it will go to... I don't entirely trust the range claims just because it's China and they measure that sort of thing differently. But this is still a 350 to 400 mile battery with 250 uh, mile 10 minute fast charge. 10 minute charge. That's ludicrous. I mean, 10 minute, yeah, 10 minute fast charge. I mean, I, I do believe it. And the reason I believe it is because in their previous announcements, they've claimed eight minutes. And um, and then when, when someone's actually used that battery, it turns out that that eight minutes translates to about 11. I think they're just being more honest this time and not, not claiming quite so much. And actually, they may have measured it, you know, and um, they, they probably don't want to get caught out. Um, as soon as this happens, every person, every company making LFP batteries in the world has to match it and has to go with fast charging. Now, it's, it's a lot of money to say, oh, our factory has got to be adjusted yet again, and we've only just built them. It's a lot of money. But if you're competing with CATL, you have to do it. And it, as soon as one big company does it, everyone has to do it. That's the thing. CATL is doing all of this. It's doing the anode stuff. It's in the cathode, separator, electrolyte. Lots of LFP companies just produce LFP cathode materials. So it'll take the combination of other companies producing all the other battery materials to even have any hope of matching it. If one of them falls behind, then it all falls yeah, apart. Yeah, they just, just, just have, to, have to sell their product cheap, make less margin, go bust. Yeah. And why I believe this, just very quickly, this is incredibly heavy on detail. It went through in reasonable depth all of the little iterations to different parts, which CATL never does. It's infuriating, but this is great. This is an improvement. Well, yeah. This is a but big step This forward. is more like Elon Musk having a battery day, you know, and explaining how he revolutionized mm. batteries. This is actually them saying, okay, we have to explain our product as well. We'll sell it internationally. Which I'm confident. All right. So this has been uh, a, a record length uh, podcast. It's all from the issues that uh, are on our website. If you're not a subscriber, uh, go to rethinkresearch.biz, click energy. Um, a, a little button will come up asking you for uh, your details and we'll get in touch. Um, or email ros at rethinkresearch.biz if you need this information now. This is just a fraction of what we've produced this week. And then monthly we produce a new forecast throughout the year. So thank you and goodbye for this edition of the podcast.